Are there contradictions in the Bible? Well, some people think there are many, while others hold to the view that there are no contradictions. So, what's the truth? Well, stay with us as we find out as Dr. J. Vernon McGee deals with some of these claims of contradiction on today's broadcast. This is the question and answer program with our Bible teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, who answered the questions of his listeners for over 30 years. We hope that you'll be able to pull your chair up to our table with Bible in hand and an open heart to the Word of God. This program is a ministry of the Through the Bible Radio Network. Our first question today comes from a listener in Covina, California, who writes, When Christians get to heaven, will they see God? I know we'll see Jesus, but what about God? Well, I have taken the position, not in any dogmatic or categorical manner, that we will not, but we are going to enjoy a relationship with him that is quite wonderful. I think it's evident. One of the reasons that I say we'll not see him, God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. That's the way the Lord Jesus put it. Now, he came in the flesh, and he today is the glorified man, and we expect to see him someday. And that will be sufficient for me. I don't know why that this question keeps coming up, other than it's a natural curiosity on the part of many of us. I think probably I'd like to turn and read some scriptures that might be helpful, and I've been over them quite recently in our Through the Bible program. It's in the book of Revelation, chapter 21. It says, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. God will be with man, and the fact that he'll be with us, I think he'll make his presence known to us, and it will not be necessary to make it known through the eye gate. We can know it otherwise, of course. There is a desire today of having somebody that we can see. It's like the little girl at night. She was in her room, and she didn't want to go to sleep, or probably she couldn't go to sleep. And she said to her mama, finally, trying to coax her to come in, she said to her, said, I'm afraid. And her mother said to her, well, God is with you. Don't you know that? And she says, yes, I know that but I want somebody with a face. And that, I think, as expressed by the little girl, is the desire of many of us. And then, as you move over in this passage in the 21st chapter, down to verse 22, it says, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. 
and he's going to be there in the New Jerusalem, and the Lord Jesus will be there. And we are told the city had no need of the sun, neither the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And it's going to be glorious and beautiful and all of that, but I could not answer your question categorically or dogmatically. I just take the position that I don't believe that we will see God. If we do, it'll be a great delight. If we don't, I'm not going to be disappointed. Our next question comes to us from a listener in Canelton, Indiana, who says, I agree with you that the living saints will not go through the Great Tribulation. However, I heard a minister say that the rapture will not occur until the last trump of the seven that are sounded in Revelation 11. He used 1 Corinthians 15.52 to support his position. Could you help me in understanding this type of thinking? I'm very happy to deal with that question because that is the same old cliche that those folk that want to push the church into the Great Tribulation constantly bring forth. They don't seem to recognize that it's been answered in several different ways. Now, I'll give you my answer to it, which, by the way, is a little different than the others. There is not a last trumpet connected with the church at all. The church doesn't have any trumpets that go along with it. Now, I know that immediately someone will say that in 1 Thessalonians 4, where You say that's the rapture of the church. It says, The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. Now, there's no trio there. The Lord Jesus is coming himself with a shout, and his voice will be like the voice of an archangel because of its majesty and its dignity and its power. And then we're told he'll descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. Now, somebody says there is a trumpet there. Oh, no, friends, there's no trumpet there. That's his voice. Someone says, do you know that? I do know that. In Revelation 1.10, John is on the Isle of Patmos, and he said, I heard a voice like the sound of a trumpet. And I turned to see the voice. And who did he see, friends? He saw the glorified Christ. His voice is going to be like the sound of a trumpet. This ought to get rid of the silly notion that Gabriel is going to blow a trumpet. To begin with, I don't think Gabriel owns a trumpet. And if he does own a trumpet, I don't think he could blow it. And even if he could blow it, he won't need it. Can you imagine the Lord Jesus needing Gabriel or anyone else or any angel or any trumpet to help him raise the dead. Now, if you want to know how ridiculous this is, and again, I do not mean to be irreverent, can you imagine him at the grave of Lazarus saying, Gabriel, come on over here and help me get this man out of the grave? That's ridiculous. Of course it is. He is God. He won't need anyone to help him and not the blowing of a trumpet. Now, those seven trumpets, and the one in 1 Corinthians, the last trump there, that's his last call, and his last call to this earth will be to call his church out of this world. That's what you have in 
1 Corinthians 15, 52. He's calling his church out of the world. That trumpet hasn't anything in the world to do with the church. It has everything to do with Israel. You see, it took seven trumpets back in the Old Testament when they left Egypt. It took seven trumpets to get them on the wilderness march every day that they marched. It required, if you will check that in the book of Numbers, look at the silver trumpets in chapter 10. And you will notice that when they moved out, that there were four sides of the tabernacle. Four trumpets were used to get three of the tribes. At each trumpet, three of the tribes would move out. Then there were three trumpets blown to get the tribe of Levi moving the tabernacle out. And as a result, four and three, seven. Seven trumpets were there. So seven trumpets in Revelation and the Great Tribulation are blown to get Israel back in the land. And they'll be back in the land during that period. And these trumpets are moving along that will bring Christ to earth in judgment. You see, there are no angels or trumpets connected with the rapture of the church. But there are trumpets and angels connected with the second coming of Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. And that great tribulation period takes place between. And today, this idea that the church should go through the great tribulation because it needs purifying. Well, most of the church has already missed the great tribulation. It'd be just the few that are left at the time of the rapture that would be pushed into it, if that's the viewpoint you want to take, and you will have to explain why they had to be pushed into it and the others in the past. And you can't say that they were any more spiritual than the crowd is today, and yet it's at low ebb today. But I don't think that you could rule them out altogether. We come now to a question from a listener in Seattle, Washington. The listener writes, Exodus chapter 20, verse 11 says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh. There appears to be a contradiction between Genesis chapter 1 and Exodus 20, verse 11. May I say to you that I have never had anyone that has made this kind of a distinction before, but I'm very happy to have the question because I've discovered that what is a question to one individual will be a question to some other individual. Now, let me turn to verse 11 in chapter 20 of Exodus and say, first of all, that here you have the giving of the Ten Commandments. And in Genesis 1, you have the creation given in detail. That is, in as much detail as God gives it, as we saw at the time, we felt that God gave a very limited account. But it is the most detailed account. Now, here in the 20th chapter, he's talking about the Ten Commandments that he gave to the nation Israel. And in this particular one, he's discussing with them why he gave to them the Sabbath day. Now, when he says, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. Now, you're attaching too much of a technical meaning to that, which, of course, is not there at all. This includes 
everything that Genesis 1 has to say. God created the heavens and the earth, something happened. Then he moved in, and in six days, there is that process of recreation. Now, all of that is in this statement here. In six days, the Lord made, not created, he made the heaven and the earth. That is, as we have it until the fall of man, until man brought it down again to the state that it's in today. And the thought here hasn't anything to do with creation. You've attached too much of a significance and an importance to a statement here that's just a general statement. The detail is in Genesis 1, and this covers the entire spectrum of Scripture that has to do with creation, because what we have here is God resting. And why did he rest? It's all complete. He saw it was perfect. It was nothing to add, and so he rested. And the picture is the picture of our redemption as we have it in the epistle to the Hebrews. We enter into a Sabbath today. I observe the Sabbath day every day now. I rest in Christ. May I be personal? I got up this morning and I walked out in my backyard, which is quite a ranch, as many of you know. I've got all kinds of trees out there. And the camellias were in bloom and My, there was an abundance of them. This was a good year for camellias, and they're so beautiful. And I just thank God for his creation. I thank God for my salvation, that it's complete. I rest in it. He did it all. When the Lord Jesus on the cross said, Tetelestai, it's finished. My redemption was finished, and I enter into that rest. And so that's the meaning you're to get here. He's not discussing creation here. He's just giving you a general statement, and there's no contradiction whatsoever, and I'm glad that you put it like that, this seeming contradiction. Now, I trust that what we've said might indeed be helpful to you. We turn now to this question from a listener in Decatur, Georgia, who writes, Please explain the significance of the name Everlasting Father as applied to Christ in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Now, this is that very wonderful passage of Scripture in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. We use that at Christmas time a great deal. And we make us, the U.S., the United States. I'm afraid a great many use it that way. And, of course, there are so many people trying to find the United States in the Bible. It's not there, of course, but here is U.S., at least, for unto us. But U.S. here doesn't mean United States. It means Israel. And it actually looks to the future when He's going to come, and his name then will be Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Now, he's not those right now in the world. As far as I know, they've not called him in in Washington or the United Nations to ask him how to solve their problems. 
And my friend, they better call him in because they don't have the answer today. Man does not have the answer to our problems. But now let me zero in on this term, the everlasting Father. And I trust you won't mind if I take my first volume on Isaiah, and this part it says that others have avoided it. I don't know why. It's actually a very simple name in one sense. The name in the Hebrew is Aviad, and it means Father of Eternity. Not the everlasting Father, but the Father of Eternity. And it simply means that he is the creator of all things, even time itself, the ages, and the far-off purpose of all things. All things were made by him, John says in John 1, 3. And without him was not anything made that was made. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Now that's in Colossians 1.16. That's a tremendous statement concerning the deity of Christ, and he in that sense bears the title the Father of Eternity, because he created it. And then we're told in Hebrews 1, 2, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Now the reference in Hebrews here should be ages instead of worlds, and that is the thought in this title here. He not only created physical things that are both visible and invisible. By the way, when was the last time you saw an atom walk by the front door of your house? I'm sure you haven't seen one recently. And he's made a lot of things that are visible and invisible. But the emphasis here is he not only created them, but he created the ages, that is, the time capsule that reveals that he's working on a purpose today. And these ages reveal that purpose. God has had a purpose in every age. He had a purpose with Adam and Eve. He had a purpose at the time of Noah. He had a purpose when he called Abraham. And he had a purpose when he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt and gave them the Mosaic law. Then he had a purpose in sending Christ into the world. And he has a purpose today in calling people out. He's calling many sons home to glory. Now, that means he's the father of eternity. He created all of this. And this is the meaning of this expression. Our next question comes to us from a listener in Portland, Oregon, who wrote, In Luke chapter 22, verses 36 through 38, Jesus seems to okay a sword, saying two swords were enough. But in John's gospel, he scolds Peter for using the sword. Could you please reconcile these two passages of Scripture? Well, I don't think it's very difficult at all. In your passage in Luke, you'll notice Luke 22, verse 36, why he makes this statement, Then said he unto them, But now he that hath a purse, 
let him take it, and likewise his script, and he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. What he's saying is now that they go out in order to preach the gospel, there are dangers along the highway, and this is for defense, not offense. Now, the one in John's gospel, when he rebuked Peter, Peter was using his and using his in a rather wild manner and in a dangerous manner. And it wasn't for defense at all. It was to satisfy Simon Peter's notion of wanting to defend Christ. And the Lord Jesus didn't need that. He told him he could have a legion of angels there, and that would be lots better, by the way, than having Simon Peter using his sword. One is for offense. The other is for defense. And I think both of them very reasonable. And I do not think that you find any conflict there at all. Our final question today comes to us from a listener in Eugene, Oregon, and she writes, Would you explain the contradiction between Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, and Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12? Now, let's hold on to that for just a moment, because I hear so much today, so many of these letters say, a contradiction. How do you reconcile? There's no contradiction to begin with, friends, and I'm not in the business of reconciling contradictions in the Bible because there are no contradictions in the Bible. The contradiction is in our minds and in our own hearts, and we do not understand everything, and there are many things I don't understand. But here, this is quite obvious. Now, he says in Galatians 5, 17, for the flesh Warreth against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary, one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Now, you and I have two natures if we're believers an old nature and new nature. The old natures label the flesh, the new nature is the spirit. The Holy Spirit can lead us and guide us, and He can't lead the flesh, but He can lead the new nature that we have. And there's a war going on in us between the flesh and the new nature. Paul tells about that in the 7th of Romans. Now, over in Ephesians, the 6th chapter, verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And in the verse before, in verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the strategy of the devil. Now, you and I have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And in Galatians, he's talking about the war that we have of the flesh. The flesh is our enemy. And you deal with it altogether differently than you do the world or the devil. Now, in Ephesians, he's talking about the devil is our enemy. And our enemies are not flesh and blood, some other man. That's really not our enemy. Our enemy is a spiritual enemy, and it's Satan who's back of it. And Satan uses, of course, the flesh to get to us. And he uses the world to get to us. Oh, boy, how does he use the world to get to Christians today? And he's certainly getting to them. But these are three different enemies. They must be dealt with differently. There's no contradiction. In one place, 
Paul is talking about the flesh as our enemy, how to deal with it. The other place he's talking about the devil as our enemy and how to deal with him. There's no contradiction. It just happened to be two subjects. And I've discovered over the years that if we just let the Bible talk about what it's talking about, we'd have no problem whatsoever. But we try to make it say something it doesn't say. And that's the reason that many of us, including myself, we get into problems and difficulties on many occasions. We hope that the answers given today have been an inspiration to you in finding the answers to your questions through diligent study of God's Word. If you'd like some assistance in your studies, we have a number of excellent resources by Dr. McGee, which will provide you with the help that you need to know and understand the Scriptures yourself. To receive our resource catalog, just contact us anytime at 1-800-65-BIBLE, leaving your voicemail request along with your name, address, and the call letters of this station. If you're interested in purchasing a CD copy of today's broadcast or any of our other products, you can get ordering information when you contact one of our service operators at 1-800-652-4253, Monday through Thursday from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific Time. This week we'll be continuing Dr. McGee's five-year study through the whole Word of God. We hope that you'll be able to join us on the Through the Bible radio program To be added to our mailing list for our newsletter and notes and outlines, you can do so by calling 1-800-65-BIBLE anytime, using our internet order form, or downloading them from our website at ttb.org. Or you can always write to Questions and Answers in the U.S., Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109. In Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1. Now, until this same time next week, we pray that God will answer all your questions and solve all your problems. Jesus made it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson This program has been brought to you by the faithful friends and supporters of Through the Bible Radio Network.